Shit Platypus Says, episode 16. Tati Westbrook is breaking down why she posted that now infamous 43-minute video in which she called out the alleged inappropriate and entitled behavior of fellow YouTuber James Charles. Their feud began in April when James posted to his Insta stories about Sugar Bear Hair, a direct competitor to Tati's Halo Beauty line. Big no-no. Tati <laughs> tearfully responded on her Instagram stories without calling out James directly. Tati admitted that she felt betrayed and lost. And then things really got serious. Tati's lengthy video posted last Friday where she accused James of betraying her and allegedly sexually harassing straight men. James identifies as gay. You know, it's really disgusting to manipulate someone's sexuality, especially when they are still, you know, emerging into adulthood. I don't know what you've been told. See, I am not your enemy. But if there's one thing that I know, it's that you ain't a friend of me. somebody's like personal behavior is dragged up in a and so it's not like he's he's like he's quite clearly not like abused anybody or anything like this but the way that somebody's like what somebody deemed as morally wrong in someone's personal behavior is being dragged up to defend their brand or something this person needs to be tarnished he released this video like in his defense um and and then it kind of all comes out with all these like receipts or whatever and it's all kind of cute like he's like he's in a bar and he's checking someone out and then he's like speaking to them on instagram yeah. thing and then he's like let's let's meet up or something and i i don't know maybe it doesn't go his way or whatever and and this is all coming out on youtube um and i was shocked by how tame it was or something i don't know <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. He's just showing, like, I'm uh, just being a young man exploring my sexuality with these people, and you're accusing me of being a monster. So there are these mean texts that both Tati Westbrook and Jeffree Star, like, that show their opinion, what they think of him all of a sudden, which is that he should be put away, according to Jeffree Star, because mm -hmm. he's a menace. Mm -hmm. And and it's uh, these big babies and their fucking brands right like they're defending their rackets by going after this kid and his sexual orientation and and the best thing that he says in the video is that he's like okay so you're calling me a predator which is the same thing that people have called like homosexual men especially i'd like to pose a question to you the audience and ask why is it okay for zara larson a woman with a public platform to tweet these photos of a shirtless man and say who are you where do you live how old are you why are you so fine how do you like your eggs cooked in the morning but for me as a gay man to DM the same person in private with a simple compliment is predatory. These stereotypes around gay men have been and continue to be very, very harmful to the community and have been historically used to villainize gay men in society. Girl, I'm not saying that like James Charles is like fighting the fight for sexual emancipation. Let me just say on the record that I don't think that James Charles is a poster <laughs> child for the sexual revolution, guys. But what I'm saying is that there is this nasty little authoritarian shaming sensibility that's been around and it, yeah, like through the Me Too stuff, it's been here. And you know, like it is nasty. It is that Jeffree Star text. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're a menace. You should be put away. And I guess I took some satisfaction in seeing this 20 year old kid who like understood that he was being shamed 
And he was like, what? Like, I'm exploring my sexuality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And clapped back. (laughs) So what does this have to do with the left, though? So these influencers have millions of followers. Um, and lots of people watch this stuff and will watch these shaming videos and yeah, but I don't know what it, it, what it has to do with the left. Yeah, I don't think it has to do um, much with the, the left. I mean, I guess in a sort of mediated sense only that the left has participated in the bad culture of public shaming and it has supported it as if it were some kind of like moralistic duty on their part. There is a way in which cancel culture is, or this like moment of cancel culture is happening in the left, for instance, like in the art world with Nina Power. And um, and again, and that's being taken up explicitly by people who would are calling themselves leftists, like artists that are very politically involved in calling themselves and defending like the left. I think that the left does bear responsibility, some responsibility for, you know, adding to this fire. I don't know, it's not participating in some some of the good aspects of civil society, which is that we can appeal to each other's reason mm-hmm. and that we don't have to persecute people for their sexual behavior. I mean, this is the really bizarre part of it, right? Mm-hmm. That's the really scary conservative part of it, that they're mm-hmm. shaming him. And that people are these receipts. People are their total amount of twitter status and doesn't it amount to this black and white thinking as in like as in as if you can expose somebody for something they've said and then they're inherently evil and you no longer have to deal with them in any way or listen or listen to anything they have to say or like you can just cancel like and you're done yeah it's like it's very like simplistic view of, of the world yeah also also it's an opportunistic one that's really about these brands right like that's that's like the second layer of it, which is that like, you know, the, these these self-righteous like generation of millennials, because Tati and uh, Jeffree Star are like these older millennials, right? And, and, and James Charles is the kind of post-millennial, like younger mm-hmm. person. Um, and that they're brand fights, they're rackets, right? And to call them out as such, I mean, at least, again... You're right. I don't think it has to do with the left, but just like uh, I don't want to live in a world where I, I don't know. I just don't. I don't want to. I don't want to. Have you ever seen Snowtown, the Australian film? No. Oh, it's, it's like vigilante justice that was like based in a true story in Australia, and these like people that thought someone was a young man was being molested, and their family like takes this revenge on like the entire community and it sort of spirals into like serial killings and these kinds of things this is what yeah. i think of as being like the future of vigilante justice of course it's 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 a dystopic and you know paranoid I, I, image i was about to ask you so where do we go from here that you you've just told me <laughs> i don't want that world i don't want that world mm-hmm. <laughs> i guess it's, i guess it's a true it's a serious question in terms of like has cancel culture reached peak cancel culture or do we have many more years of um canceling to to go yeah this is why james charles gives me hope so Uh. team team james charles (laughs) (laughs) all the way (laughs) thank thank you sophia for entertaining my uh dystopic paranoia
Welcome to Shit Platypus Says, your one-stop shop for the symptomology, necrology, and epidemiology of the left. My name is Pamela Nogales, and I'll be joined by two co-hosts today. The first you just heard from, Sophia Freeman. Sophia is a London member and pedagogue for our Goldsmiths chapter, and has just led an interview for the Platypus Review with Catherine Cleaver, a member and communications secretary for the Black Panther Party during its heyday. You can find the article in the episode description. The rest of the episode is dedicated to Venezuela. I'll be joined by Marco Torres, a founding member of Platypus, who you might remember from our episode on the Mexican elections. Marco has written on the legacy of the Bolivarian Revolution in the Platypus Review, which I will also link in the episode description. For the first half, we'll be interviewing Alejandro Velasco, author of Barrio Rising, Urban Popular Politics and the Making of Modern Venezuela. He's also a contributor to the New York Times as well as the Chicago Left publication In These Times and Jacobin Radio. We'll be discussing the passing of Chavismo and the legacy of the Chavez regime, as well as the current response by the American left to the crisis in Venezuela. That's just the first half, so you better get ready. Take some notes. Spicy. Yeah, enjoy it. You wrote in this uh, article in, in these times in March that both uh, the attempts by the opposition to bring in uh, overthrow from outside of the regime uh, should be opposed, but also uh, the Maduro regime should be opposed. And uh, a kind of a third uh, position should be taken there, you know, what you call the Venezuelan working class or the Venezuelan people. And I was wondering if uh, it'd be possible for you to expand a little bit on what that would mean. Who are these people? What is the kind of politics on the ground that you would think should be supported? Well, let me just clarify that the piece that I refer in these times is really meant for um, for a U.S. left audience. Mm -hmm that has, I think, struggled really to make sense of what's been happening in Venezuela in terms of where solidarity should lie. I think the knee-jerk reaction to, you know, once you see people like Elliot Abrams and John Bolton right. spearheading anything that looks like, and not just looks like, but is explicitly posed as intervention from the United States in Latin America, and then, you know, explicitly using language like the Monroe Doctrine, um, right. it, can, it can't but uh, raise major alarms, and it should have raised major alarms on the part of the U.S. left, whose primary responsibility and mm -hmm. um, course of action is to hold their own government accountable here in the United States. You know, forget what's what's happening in Venezuela. So that's the first thing that I that I wrote up for that audience. And on that basis, the other thing that I was you know have been seeing a lot in terms of that confusion is that there's a sense that knee-jerk opposition to U.S. government intervention in Latin America then leads to a kind of blind support for the government um, in power, uh, Nicolás Maduro. Right. And that position does not hew to what I at least hear from and see when I go back um, on the ground in terms of grassroots sectors who um, live 
day-to-day the crisis in Venezuela who have been in the past committed Chavistas but who see Maduro in power not only as um, as a guarantee of their continued uh, their continued crisis but they also see Maduro in power as a um, as 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 undermining the the larger project of Chavismo um, and you know we can talk a lot about what they understand by the larger project of Chavismo, but more concretely, that you know these sectors that I speak with, who very much not only fashion themselves, but who have lived the crisis as leftists in Venezuela, um, nevertheless understand that Maduro is not somebody who Chavistas should continue to support, and so therefore anybody who wants to stand in solidarity, mm-hmm. not with Guaido and the opposition, who have of course their own major problems. Problems, ideologically speaking, but with you know grassroots sectors in, in Venezuela must also at the same time as they're opposing U.S. intervention, right. oppose uh, the Maduro government's claims to legitimacy, and so that's basically what I was trying to get at in mm-hmm. that piece. So, the people of Venezuela, the people that you're specifically talking about, the sort of grassroots opposition that, as you put it, um, are still committed chavistas and want something other than Maduro. Like, what is it that you think um, the American left should do in terms of solidarity for these people? Well, the first thing is to unequivocally reject any attempt of regime change by the United States that is led by the United States and that is done without the explicit, um, without, without the explicit uh, aim of holding immediate elections in Venezuela. So the first thing that the U.S. should do is reject that out of hand. The second thing that the U.S. needs to do is to reject the claims to legitimacy of the Maduro government. The elections last May were clearly a sham. But it can't stop there. It can't just be uh, you know, opposition to U.S. and to Maduro. It has to also have an affirmative dimension. Mm-hmm. The affirmative dimension, which again is something that, you know, even though it's not spoken out loud as much as as, um, as one would want, it's certainly something that, that, that I hear from actors on the ground is that, you know, if what we want is to have Venezuelans themselves um, decide the future of the country, then that can only best be done through actually free, fair elections. Mm-hmm. Concretely, that means um, getting rid of um, the sanctions that have been imposed certainly since January, but some others as well. Because as we saw in the case of Nicaragua in 1989, 1990, that this was the tool through which um, the, the balance of power was tilted in favor of Chamorro versus um, the Sandinistas, right, by sort of holding the, the carrot of, of the lifting of sanctions. Mm-hmm. Do you see um, force on the ground that without the intervention of other states could successfully defeat the Maduro government and create the possibility for free and fair elections? I was going to ask that exactly, but more specifically, is there is there a, uh, any kind of basis to uh, develop political parties or or is there a surviving political parties that could participate in these free elections? Well, there's tons of parties. Mm-hmm. Problem is that they've been, you know, some of them have been, you know, invalidated by the government. Right. And so that there, there are... You know, political structures, and obviously the PSUE is still a very powerful political party, the per-government party. Um, so mm-hmm. the issue isn't electoral mechanisms, or at least political mechanisms, through which people can express their 
you know, their their political positions. Mm-hmm. The the issue is, I think, what Pamela was mentioning. You know, can how do you create the conditions such that elections can actually be held? And that is obviously the the conundrum, right? That um, on its own, Maduro is not going to wake up one day and say, "Oh, great, yeah, I think we should call mm-hmm. new elections." And so, surely there has to be pressure. Um, but the pressure that is being promoted by the United States has a foregone conclusion attached to it. That is the definition of regime change. So the definition of regime change is that you anticipate and are working towards a desired outcome that you then force your mechanisms of pressure into doing anything that in terms of forcing a democratic outcome in Venezuela has to leave open the possibility that, in fact, some of the sectors of the opposition that have been taking the lead over the last six months um, may, in fact, not be the ones that, that hold power in the end. They have to be forced to articulate what vision they want for the country right. beyond just getting rid of Maduro, which is not something that the opposition has ever done really well in Venezuela, and therefore leaves themselves open to easily being attacked both by the government and by you know leftists abroad. It's saying you know they're they're just a bunch of neoliberals or they're right wingers, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, we just don't know because they haven't really articulated any plan, and so they have to be forced into a position where, in an electoral context, they'll say yes, we want to privatize PDVSA or not. Right. Yes, we want to bring the IMF in or not. That's what a truly open electoral contest would do. How do you get, you know, Maduro, you know, do that? Yes, you absolutely exert pressure. But there are other ways to do it, right? And so other alternatives like this international contact group or what's happening now in Norway, what had been happening, mm-hmm. you've articulated before vis-a-vis, you know, Mexico and Uruguay as potential alternatives, right. which were completely dismissed out of hand as not only possible, but plausible by the opposition. Now those opportunities are coming to the fore. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro says this week's talks in Norway between representatives from his government and the opposition would seek to build a peaceful agenda. His remarks come after Norway said talks were in an exploratory phase. Opposition leader Juan Guaido also confirmed the talks were underway. But he said in an address on Saturday he would not be deceived. Guaido had insisted any talks must lead to the end of Maduro's government. Before we get back to the interview, here's George Galloway, former Labour Party MP, speaking on Hugo Chavez and his legacy after his death in 2013. Hugo Chavez expropriated the richest of the oligarchy. He distributed Venezuela's God-given oil wealth across the mass of the population. And that's why he kept on winning elections. How someone can be described as a despot and a tyrant when he won four presidential elections with thumping majorities and after 14 years in power won the biggest vote that he'd ever had and I was there with my wife for two weeks and the mass of the Venezuelan people are in mourning. Of course the gold-toothed emigres who were dancing in the streets of Miami last night, they can dance on the lion's grave but they can never be a lion. I'd like us to switch to talk about the kind of socialism that was 
uh, attempted, right? There's this at least idea on the left that there was an experiment at a type of socialism. Chavez himself said that it was not the model that Marx and Engels was were discussing. It was something different. El socialismo petrolero right. of Venezuela and what what that actually was. I guess the question that connects it is, is there, you, you seem to be suggesting that the future of Venezuela will include something like liberal democracy. But I guess the question that uh, we'd like to raise, is there a future for socialism in Venezuela? And is it going to be like uh, Chavez's socialism? And, and what was that? Number one, I'll just clarify that, that that I'm I'm not sort of a priori suggesting that the future of Venezuela should include liberal democracy. Oh. There are legitimate reasons for thinking about why this is the case, but not to conflate the current crisis with the past 20 years. Right. Right. And so you hear this a lot, right? That the problems today go back to 1999 and the um, and Chavez coming to power, which is a, which is a way of basically erasing, for instance, opposition culpability in the first years of the Chavez government in staging anti-democratic and frankly, you know, insurrectionary, uh, you know, disloyal moves to oust a government that in its first years was actually extremely tepid in its articulation of any kind of reform efforts. Also ignores the ways in which between 2004 and 2012, you know, the caloric intake of Venezuelans was increased by a thousand uh, on average. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, You know, also uh, elides the ways in which, you know, huge uh, advances in in housing and, 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 and health were promoted. But of course, and that speaks to your other question about what kind of socialism are we talking about? It was a socialism that was entirely and far more even dependent on a single commodity to fund itself, um, as had been the previous governments under the Punto Fijismo, and that, of course, is oil. What's important, though, I think, to recognize is the, is the following, right? So Chavez does not even begin to speak about socialism until 2005. Right. And, you know, we now think of Chavez as a socialist firebrand, etc. But the fact that he didn't even begin to talk about socialism in 2005 means that there's a seven year period before then that the kind of government experiments that were being attempted and that were being promoted by Chavismo did not actually have at the core a vision of state-led development, which is very much like the 20th century forms of socialism that we had seen in the Soviet Union and other places, right? In fact, the kind of experience that we were seeing in those early years had much more to do with participatory democratic mechanisms, had much more to do with direct control over finite resources, had much more to do with bringing together, certainly, the power of the state, but not as a tutelary power that then directs hierarchically the functions of the nation, but that is far more symbiotic between those on the ground and those in um, in state. That begins to be completely eroded beginning in 2004, but far more so after 2005, in part, yes, because of this shift towards a more socialist discourse on the part of Chavez, but also because as a result of, and you know, I don't know what you guys think about this, but this is at least my position, mm-hmm extremely self-sabotaging, disastrous policies taken by the opposition, which basically completely gave control of the state to Chavez, right? So the coup in 2002 allowed Chavez to purge the military Mm -hmm. and to therefore recraft the military in a different image. The oil industry lockout in 2002-2003, of course, allowed Chavez to fire 18,000 workers and then reshape and take control over the entire oil industry. And then the 2005 boycott of national assembly elections which were the product of a uh, of a fiction of a of a fiction of a double fiction the first fiction being that 
Chavez stole the referendum of 2004 based on very little, any, any kind of actual legitimate evidence. And number two, that there's no, re, there's no way that we could lose. We are the legitimate owners of, not owners, we are the legitimate rulers of Venezuela. And so, you know, this, this concept, this idea mm-hmm. that, to use the language that's in vogue now, that, that Chavez usurped power from those who are legitimately entrusted to rule was very much a, a, you know, part of a larger kind of uh, mentalité of the opposition at the time. And those three moves, right gave Chavez complete control over the state, the legislature, the oil industry, and the military. That coincided with this explosion of oil prices, which were not engineered by Chavez, of course, which were the product of the invasion of Iraq, and of course also you know, commodities boom being propelled by China at the time, um, that then just me- basically meant that he had huge amounts of revenues and no institutional checks. And that's when you began to see the massive amounts of corruption laced by, uh, you know, this language of socialism, which at the same time was in fact promoting consumerism and therefore became extremely schizoid. What, what you're saying is that the, the original reformist impulse of Chavez was actually uh, uh, ruined kind of by the socialist discourse or that the socialist discourse was a turn, a turn away from this kind of... Uh, you know, more positive, in your view, reformism that was going on earlier, that was about participatory democracy and all this stuff? Um, I think that what ruined the socialist experiment was the Mm -hmm. confluence of an unchecked institutional power of all levers of the state, which in part was the product of opposition mistakes, and the the influx of historic levels of petrodollars into a petrostate. Right. Um, I, I guess I was reacting to like you're saying that it's right around that time also that the socialist discourse really gets going, though. Exactly. And not right. only does it get going, but then it becomes institutionalized by way of, you know, the 2006, 2000, well, the 2007, um, you know, uh, uh, constitutional reform. Basically, the way to think about this is that the, re- the constitution that was passed in 1999 was a constitution that was participatory democratic in orientation that because it was participatory democratic and it also made some overtures towards or some some gestures towards thinking about how the state should redistribute its resources Mm -hmm. more equitably had what we would call a socialist orientation even if not ideologically termed as such what happens with the constitutional reform efforts of 2007 that are rejected we shouldn't forget that's the major you know the one major electoral loss that um, that Chavez um, you know suffers in his career um, was because it was basically saying that old constitution with those values and aims that we had intended is now no longer applicable in this new terrain right and so that sort of begins the process of creating basically two chavismos a chavismo that is mm-hmm. much more experimental in these participatory democratic ways which is positive absolutely but it's also circumscribed by unfortunately at the time just this tremendously insurrectionary moves on the part of the opposition and then by 2005 when chavez now has complete control over the state and these new revenues an abandoning of those earlier principles that uphold the value of grassroots experimentation now say forget that the state is as it has always been the primary guarantor of the distribution of resources in Venezuela. And now we have control over all the state and this is the way we're going to do it and it's going to be highly vertical in its, um, in its form. How much power did the people have at the beginning of this experiment of socialism? I guess the way to answer that question is to say, you know, Consejos Comunales are the first articulation 
of this effort exactly after the you know after Travis starts talking about socialism to distribute the resources of the state by way of the oil revenues to organized localities. And in that vein, it is it is not refashioning or remaking the state. It is basically creating these organizations that don't actually have capacity to challenge state policy, but do have the capacity to be able to channel resources and then use them in whatever way their communities most see fit. So it's a disaggregation of um, popular power rather than an aggregation of popular power. If you ask me very concretely, what did those first seven years of Chavismo before, social, you know, before the advent of you know, socialism of the 21st century look like? Concretely, it's a CETEUS. And before that, they had been organized into the um, Circulos Bolivarianos. And before that, they had been organized into the Mesas Técnicas de Agua, going back to the 1990s. And before that, they had been organized as Juntas Parroquiales, going back to the um, early 1980s. So you can track the long lineage of strong community-level organizing that then gets affixed to these new experimental forms of actually having access to resources that comes at a time when the state is not completely in the hands of an extremely charismatic figure with a vision for what he wants for Venezuela that disaggregates local power by way of these consejos comunales and then has real trouble trying to re-articulate that power um, in terms of the, the estado comunal. Would you say that uh, at this point after that, you know, uh moment of uh, Chavez completely taking over uh, state power control and then his death and the uh, uh, Maduro regime, uh, those kinds of organization, that kind of like grassroots side of Chavismo uh, or, or the Bolivarian revolution, uh, where does it stand at this point? I mean, at this point, it's completely dismantled. Destroyed, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but that has to do... I mean, that has to do with many things, including, of course, just the collapse of oil prices. But I think more generally... I mean, you're already beginning to see this around 2012, um, you know, right before Chavez dies. Right. You know, what he has, I think that he realized around 2011, certainly by 2012, but around 2011, that to some extent he had made a mistake. And in fact, his very famous golpe de timón speech, um, he kind of acknowledges this. And the mistake that he acknowledges is that in trying to take control over the state in order to be able to promote the organization by way of real access to resources of these grassroots groups, he had disaggregated power, number one, and two, instead promoted consumerism in the absence of a strong ideological vision about not holding, you know, not being beholden to, uh, to access to cash rather than having it be a more, you know, like socialist orientation of, of where um, self-interest comes from. Um, and so by simultaneously promoting consumerism and then also you know, disaggregating the power of, uh, of organized local communities, he realized, oh my gosh, now we have to you know, like resolve this contradiction. Mm -hmm. And the way that he tried to resolve that contradiction by, was by introducing this concept of the Estado Comunal, the communal state, right? Um, but of course, the problem with the Estado Comunal is that it was going to come into direct conflict with the architecture of the pre-existing state, which was, was now completely controlled by the PSUV as a hierarchical political party as a you know, classical Leninist political party. And so mayors, that even though they belonged to the PSUV, did not want to give up any power to the consejos comunales, even though they were trying to organize around communal lines. Um, and as a result, you had this tremendous contradiction, which was not going to be resolved unless 
you know, certainly by, uh, by anyone other than Chavez. And when Chavez dies, no one is going to resolve this contradiction. You said there's two Chavismos. On the one hand, you see one is completely defeated. And then in the other, we have this kind of status uh, form. It raises the question of what the, the future of a potential socialist politics in Venezuela is. Like, what do you think is the legacy of Chavismo in this dual sense? Is it an obstacle? Is it something to build on? Yeah, what are the lessons to learn from the experiment of Chavismo? <laughs> the lessons to learn from the experiment of Chavismo are twofold, at least from my perspective. One, you have to anticipate the reaction of an entrenched elite opposition and figure that into any kind of strategic vision. If you don't do that, you can't expect that there isn't going to be a massive reaction, sometimes in ways that are going to try to derail even tepid efforts at reform. That's the lesson of the first Chavismo. You know, the lesson of the second Chavismo is that once you've defeated that um, you know, internal opposition and you have now garnered complete power of the state, you have to continue on your original path rather than being, you know, being uh, uh, yeah, I'll just use the word, corrupted, quite literally in the case of Venezuela, by this historic influx of resources, which in the context of a petrostate is just going to promote the worst elements of an existing prior clientelist dynamic without having replaced it with a, a different kind of ideological orientation in the part of the uh, you know, popular sectors in particular. Um, so the lesson you know, in terms of, of you know, socialism, not just for Venezuela, but I think more broadly, is on the one hand, right, that the, the vision of what the country should be, it is about popular power, poder popular. There are actually mechanisms in place, or not in place, but that, that Venezuela experimented with, which were extremely successful in terms of providing more popular power to organized grassroots sectors that have previously been disenfranchised or um, you know, left out of, um, of economics and politics. But the issue is that once the state has control over institutional levers of power, it can't then try to reorient itself around a statist vision of change, right? That it has to let those um, you know, grassroots sectors that had been laboring and struggling to organize to take charge rather than it being the state that does that. The state's primary role, I mean, obviously the problem here is that Venezuela is a very particular kind of state. It's a petrostate, which is not to say that there aren't other petrostate models. Norway, of course, would be one. But Norway's, you know, so-called, you know, um, successful experiment in socialism is only made possible by the fact that there were pre-existing levels of tremendous inequality when the oil boom eventually comes in the 1960s, right? So the challenge in a place like Venezuela going forward in terms of the future of socialism is how are we going to understand and respond to the severe humanitarian crisis and the significant inequality that, um, that we see in Venezuela right now in ways that don't reinforce our dependency on a single commodity whose primary use is to alleviate immediate needs rather than to think in much more long-term ways. The problem of any petrostate is the problem of timing and time horizons. Do you think in terms of the short term or do you think in terms of the long term? Socialism has to be a, a long term project, but the times of a petrostate are always a short termist project. And that's a fundamental contradiction that you find in Venezuela. The issue of Venezuela, socialism in Venezuela, within Venezuela, like how could it have been? It, it's, it's dependent on this resource uh, in order to reproduce this project. And so. I guess it raises the issue of how much um, socialism within Venezuela is possible 
uh, or whether or not it's a sort of more global question um, that would allow for something like socialism in Venezuela to be successful. It does raise the question of how could it have been different. And I was going to add also on how it can be done democratically, right? Because if what we're talking about is, you know, we want free elections coming up, like that should be like the next immediate step. You know, the, the question is what kind of politics at the level of popular politics, democratic politics, uh, political parties could lead to solving those petrostate problems in a progressive socialist direction? Well, I see it as two separate but related questions, right? One is the issue of um, advancing democracy and another is the issue of advancing socialism. And I think this is, so mm -hmm. one is a theoretical question that is at the heart of, you know, of socialist politics going back, of course, to the late 19th century. This is why you, you know, have the Social Democratic Party rise in Germany in contrast to the more conventionally Marxist party because there is a fundamental contradiction in Marxist politics between liberal democracy and socialism, right? This, the whole theory of a dictatorship of the proletariat comes as a recognition that the bourgeoisie that emerges in a liberal democratic context will not cede any of its power, in fact, will resist aggressively to any um, challenges to, to its economic and political power. And so this is you know, why you have sort of the workers taking over uh, the means of production and insofar as it is an, anti an explicitly anti-democratic you know, move in terms of procedural democracy, in terms of liberal democracy, that's a fundamental theoretical problem that socialists need to, you know, to, to grapple with, especially in a place like the United States, right? Imagine if Bernie Sanders wins the election, great. How, in fact, are you going to promote some of the policies that have been talked about if there, if there is tremendous amount of reaction in the part of entrenched institutional sectors? Are you going to trample on some of the democratic rights of these um, organizations? Are you going to trample on the institutional power that they've held for decades and decades? Right? This becomes a challenge that we must think about in terms of a socialist future. The Venezuelan case is even more dramatic, right? because not only do you have these, these sort of classic problems of socialist theory playing out, out, but then you also have them playing out in a context where the very, exactly as you said, Pamela, the very, the very essence of the modern Venezuelan state, whether it's a military dictatorship, whether it's a liberal democracy, or whether it's a socialist project, has always been the same. That the state is the only vehicle, the only uh, node through which the resources uh, that belong to the nation can be distributed. At its height, before 2003, 40,000 people worked in the national oil industry. 40,000 people basically comprised 90% of the revenues of a country. That's it, right? And so if you have you know, a country that is completely not just dependent on a single commodity, but a commodity that is not labor-intensive, what you have is a, you know, sort of a, a problem of socialism insofar as you know, the thing that you need to promote in socialism is a reordering of self-interest from being a self-interested you know, individual to one that is primarily interested in the collective. And it's hard to do when at, your contributions to that collectivity are not actually happening at the level of labor. And so you know, this is, this is the, the more fundamental pro, you know, problem of what is the future of, of, of socialism in Venezuela. It, it can't be a conventional or classical socialism. None of these experiments happen in a vacuum. 
they happen against the backdrop of already prior existing institutional mechanisms. And so the second question that has to be asked after the issue of, you know, how do you resolve for the contradictions of state is, well, how do you actually account for exactly as you said, you know, how is there a fundamental contradiction between liberal democracy and socialist politics? And if there is a fundamental contradiction there, how are we going to resolve that in ways that may not be appealing from a democratic perspective, but may also ha force us to contend with the accumulated problems of a socialist um, of a socialist project, right? Both, I think both of those need to be taken into consideration. So to call for free elections today, because as you said, the left has been decimated in Venezuela, will mean to put certain people in power that may not want the left. Exactly, precisely. But even so, even before that, right, to, put, you know, to have um, Chavez elected in 1998 meant that there were certain sectors that did, were not going to cooperate in any sort of way. You know, if we think about the accumulated mistakes of, of Chavez and of Chavismo, um, I think one of them certainly on the part of the U.S. left or the international left was not recognizing just how intense the level of opposition would be to even small-scale reform efforts in Venezuela. And then that sort of hit us at the little core that we have inside, the little liberal democratic core that we have inside of us that says, well, yeah, you know, we want to push this along, but we don't want to trample on anyone's rights. Well, at some point, the question of rights needs to be on the table. And if we're unwilling even to address that issue, um, then we shouldn't even you know, we shouldn't even start talking about state power. The question of rights being like a, a liberal democratic right that should be challenged by socialists, you mean? Exactly, precisely. Especially, you know, specifically having to do with individual, you know, the, the whole essence of a liberal understanding of rights is that it's founded on the premise of the individual. Um, and if the individual, and in particular property rights, are, pri you know, are ascendant and primary, how does that fit within a socialist vision? Yeah. Well, wouldn't that be taken up by a dictatorship of the proletariat? Exactly. That, for example, would take the rights from the bourgeoisie to their own property. Yes, indeed. Absolutely. But then how would the bourgeoisie respond? I mean, Pam, you're talking workers' councils, you're talking Soviets here. <laughs> like, you know, there is a relationship, of course, between the dictatorship of the proletariat and uh, uh, this kind of participatory democracy. It's just there is... That, that is uh, sort of its basis. I mean, there's other mechanisms too. So, I mean, CETEUs are one. Um, one of the more interesting things that we sort of forget now about the, the period between 2002 and 2005 in Venezuela, that yes, there was a tremendous amount of opposition, but most of these efforts were being met not by the organized state, but was being, were being met by workers on the ground and people on the ground, right? I mean, like the oil industry lockout in 2000 and 2002, 2003, those are people who knew nothing about the oil industry. They knew to go to you know, the oil refinery and try to bust open the doors without having you know, the necessity of somebody you know, telling them to do that, right? And so you know, I, th I think that you're right, that, there, that, it, that it does pose a fundamental challenge in terms of thinking about, well, how do you reconcile state power with popular power? Absolutely. The, there is a relationship between the two, but it's not like we don't have examples um, you know, in Chile and in many other places of people organized on the ground actually you know, trying to wrest power away from an entrenched um, bourgeois class. It's there. The challenge primarily comes in how far we're willing to go in accepting that that is a necessary move in the pursuit of a socialist horizon or not. Yeah, I guess um, the issue of the withering away of the state comes to mind. <laughs> right. Yeah, I know for sure. It's, you know, it all goes back to that. 
Lennon is always <laughs> there in the background. Yeah, no, no, for sure. For sure. Well, thank you, Alejandro. It was very good. Thanks for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Marco. Thanks, Pam. It was great. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. interview with Marc Santuperi. He is a French journalist, editor, and translator living in Quito, Ecuador. He's the author of El Sueño de Bolívar, El Desafío de las Izquierdas Sudamericanas, and joins me to talk about the left's response to the Maduro regime, as well as to the early years of Hugo Chavez and the legacy of Chavismo. that the left has been saying about Venezuela as of late since the crisis is that you had this Chavez regime and then Chavez handed over the reins to Maduro and then Maduro took it down the wrong path so there's a lot of Chavismo nostalgia out there and it raises the question for me about why the problem has to appear this way to the left mm -hmm. um, but also if the crisis that Venezuela is experiencing right now was an inevitable decline that would have happened under Chavez. On the political level, a fair proportion of the Bolivarian regime's mechanism of authoritarian involution and, and mafia-esque, I would say, involution under Maduro were already in place under Chavez. But they did not reach the scale that we see today. That's the difference. But at the time, at Chavez's time, The justice system was manipulated by the regime. The social movements were criminalized. Independent trade unionism were criminalized. There were arbitrary detentions. There were bans on certain professions. There was systematic confusion of the party and the state. There were disregard for mechanisms defined by the Bolivarian constitution itself. There was a complete tolerance of corruption within government ranks. And there was a protection of the new rich, the new rich inside the government, what they call it, you know, in Spanish, the la boliburguesia, you know, inside the government. So all this existed already. All this existed already. But there was a, a bigger measure of pluralism, political pluralism, because Chavez had an extraordinary charisma, was much more popular, and he had a lot of money at the time. I mean, it, it was the, the oil boom. So, of course... I think all the mechanisms of the involution were, were already present. Concerning the left, uh, the comrades in Jacobin, I try to make them understand that they don't understand that Chavez and Chavismo has completely destroyed the Venezuelan left, uh, mm -hmm. which was not very powerful, but there was, there was let's say, three or four parties that have interesting lines and, and socialism, democratic socialism and things like that, they have been completely co-opted and destroyed. Chavismo has completely destroyed the Venezuelan left. The tragedy is that probably destroys any serious discourse about uh, an, a socialist alternative in Venezuela for at least 20 or 30 years. And if, if there was a party like Democratic Socialist of America in Venezuela, it would be persecuted. Some of its cadres would be in prison. 
that's what happened. That's what's a bit terrible about the misunderstanding that some American socialists have about Venezuela and this kind of Chavista nostalgia. What do you see as the legacy of Chavismo in Latin America? And maybe on the left, more broadly. After the beginning of the uh, austerity measures of Carlos André Pérez in the 90s and other regimes in the 90s, people got poorer and poorer. And adding to the poverty, there was the stigma of being, you know, uh, low class and brown or black. And that is true. That is absolutely true that Chavez, Chavez is coming to power, empowered those people, gave them money uh, at, at some point when there was money. Mm-hmm. And now there are two problems with that. I would say what people thought was a revolution was more like a gigantic self-esteem therapy for the masses. And so a lot of leftists confused this with a revolution. I don't think it was a revolution. But so, somehow he vindicated some of the long-term grievances of the subaltern sectors of the population. But the, the other thing that the redistribution that really existed was made in a completely irrational and corrupt way. All these famous missiones, the missions, you know, the social missions, were done completely outside of a normal state structure. But that means there, were, there was no control, no monitoring at all. I mean, you couldn't go in the parliament and say, well, I want to examine the budget of the mission Barrio Adentro and know where the money comes, where the money goes. You know, even if you were a leftist and you wanted it to be distributed more fairly, it was completely opaque and, and it gave place to an enormous corruption. And it was, and in the end, it was completely unsustainable. So I would say that at the time, at the time, one merit of Chavez is having put this inequality issue in the center of the agenda for the whole continent. But apart from the symbolic aspect of it, he did it all in the wrong way. As for the legacy, no, I would yes. say uh, there, there is a knee-jerk reaction against imperialism. We don't want U.S. intervention and things like that. So we must, even if Maduro is not very good, we must defend him. But nobody claims that there's something, there's a model. I mean, only very, very small minorities think there is anything to, to, to get Uh, from the legacy of Chavismo. I'd like to get into the definition of how Chavez and people around him understand his version of socialism, socialismo petrolero. Chavez himself said that this was a different model for socialism than the one espoused by Marx and Engels. And the idea is that you're going to build a model of socialism um, on a state that depends on oil profits. In the U.S., the left emphasizes that Chavez gave back the money to the people and that socialism in Venezuela is actually participatory democracy. And um, they often talk about the neighborhood committees that had power or influence over resources, state decisions. Um, So this is a two-part question. I guess one is, what is socialism for Chavez? And two, what do you see as what actually happened? So the actually existing socialism of the 21st century, what does that mean? When he was first elected, Chavez didn't speak of socialism at all, at all. In fact, when he made his campaign in 98, he was saying his model was Tony Blair's third way, you know. So. <laughs> and then he, was, he, he said he was inspired by a Peruvian uh, military uh, regime in the 70s, you know, Velasco's, uh, uh, sometimes, sometimes he, he mentioned other models. 
But the socialism word came only in 2006, at the end of 2006. Um, and uh, there was no talk of socialism. He never hid his deep admiration for Fidel Castro. But it was an admiration precisely for what he saw in Fidel Castro as, as, a, as a, the typical strong Latin American Caudillo, a Caudillo who works, supposedly works for the people. But it was a very vertical, personalist form of uh, socialism, I would say, you know, and he, he, he never hit that. As for the, the oil, basically the forms of redistribution to the people with, are also pract practiced in the Gulf countries, you know. <laughs> of course, they are not practiced for the Pakistani uh, or, uh, or Indians uh, working there, but they are practiced for the local population, the, the Emirati population, the Saudi population. And even under Sarapalin in Alaska, they would redistribute money from oil uh, directly, giving directly money to the citizens. I mean, that's the typical oil rentier regime. Uh, you can call it socialist if you want, but uh, I mean, uh, uh, the mismanagement and the corruption is absolutely gigantic, enormous. I mean, there's a lot of corruption in Latin America in general, and, and I live in Ecuador, and you know what it is in Peru. I mean, we know what it is, but the dimension in Venezuela under Chavismo was extraordinary. So, because there was also a lot, a lot of money. Uh, so, I don't see what it means. Socialismo petrolero, I don't see what it can mean as a, as a model of society. I, don't, I think it's completely mm -hmm. absurd. Mm -hmm. Completely absurd. As for the participatory democracy, I've seen it on the ground. I've talked with a lot of people who have made you know, very precise ethnographic studies of what was going on. Part of it was not really control, but symbolic empowerment, which was really touching. When you went in the barrios and you see you see that the people at the time, in 2005, 2006, the people were, there, were very proud of their constitution, very proud of having some kind of a voice, you know, and a face in the country, which was touching. I can understand. But in terms of real power, it was just a very marginal power about local municipal things. Basically, it was the same kind of management of, of poverty that the NGOs of the UNDP try to do everywhere in Africa and South America. Only that instead of your, the usual bureaucratic bubble of development that is used by the UN, you had more portraits of Che Guevara and revolutionary speech, but it was the same. Basically, it was the same. It was self-management of poverty, you know, with the money coming directly in a totally arbitrary mode. Uh, directly from the presidency, and there was a political control, which was which was inscribed in the institutional definition of, of las comunas, of the, the, the communal power. Uh, it was di directly dependent from the president's office. So, Can I ask you what specifically, what the local municipal management that these committees were in charge of, uh, what was that? What could the people in the barrio make decisions on? It could be water, it could be a connection with the, you know, the water network, it could be the trash collecting. It was mainly the public because the public services in the poor neighborhoods were so bad. And basically that means that sometimes the local people worked for free for what the, the Chavista municipality should, should have done and provided. You understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. the, 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 under revolutionary pretext, they gave extra hours and extra work, extra free work, mainly by women, just to compensate the enormous deficiencies of their own Chavista municipality and their own Chavista corrupt mayor. You understand what I mean? 
And, and of course, it was also an, an intelligent tactic of Chavez. It was some kind of Maoist tactics to maintain some pressures on his own people, the local governors, because he had some kind of pressure from the base. But as in the case of Mao Zedong, the Cultural Revolution, this pressure from the base was not constructing an alternative um, power. It was mainly useful to Chavez in his own management of the various fractions of, his, of the Bolivarian uh, structure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to understand more whether the crisis that Venezuela is experiencing now was going to happen. It seems that building a socialist project on a state entirely dependent on oil wealth Um, it's not a sustainable model. I read uh, in The Economist uh, a while back that Venezuela has actually been dependent on the United States to refine the great majority of its oil. So, so it's still greatly dependent on the United States to make the oil profitable. Uh, what I'm trying to understand is even in the terms of Chavez himself and his own vision of Venezuela, how could it have been feasible? So the first question is what do you what do you think could have been the best possible outcome of this project like what what would success what would have looked like for someone like chavez if he were around and two is the crisis that venezuela is experiencing right now was it inevitable was there specific mismanagement by the maduro regime what would have been the success uh It would have been maybe a more, uh, you know, if we, if we speak of uh, Socialismo Petrolero, there is one example of relatively functioning Socialismo Petrolero in the world, and it's Norway. <laughs> Norway, uh-huh. and it's Norway. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if we want to talk about uh, uh, right. a, a very greatly redistributed welfare state with a lot of money coming from oil, But they have a special fund for the future that the politicians cannot touch. I mean, the level of corruption is, is absolutely very, very low in Norway, you know. And there's the level of separation of powers and control that permits that this oil uh, reaches can be used in a more transparent and fair way. Uh, when, when Bernie Sanders speaks of democratic socialism, of course, he, right. he, he, rather, he rather mentions Norway than Venezuela. And uh, so I don't say Norway is the model because there's, Norway is still a capitalistic country and there might be a lot of problem with it. But I mean, comparatively, of course, it works much better. And you can say there's a measure of, of a, a socialismo petrolero in the Norwegian case. I think it would have, it could have been a, a more populist uh, uh, and tropical version of uh, socialismo petrolero as Scandinavian. You must remember something that um, at the same time, Under the suggestions of Castro, Chavez was building those misiones, those medical missions, you know, which were only primary care, which is important. Of course, primary care is important. It's good. I have nothing against the Cuban doctors. They are good doctors. The problem is that at the same time, Chavez was savagely destroying the public hospital healthcare system in, in Venezuela. Total disaster. I mean, healthcare in Venezuela is, an, is a, a terrible situation. So what it could have been better, yes, I would say maybe a more populist and tropical version of some kind of uh, oil welfare state, yes. But it has already been done. Carlos Andres Perez did exactly the same thing in the 70s, and then it ended badly. The question of the post-oil transition in Venezuela is extremely complicated. The level of dependence on oil is enormous. That's a real problem. Uh, I have no easy solution for that. 
So, and the other thing you, you asked me, I think if Chavez was still in power, first, Chavez was the real center of power and he had an enormous charisma and I think he was smarter. He would have done some compromises and he would have taken some pragmatic measures. He was really in, in control. Maduro is not in control. You've got four or five centers of power, four or five mafias, competing mafias into the structure of power. And my hypothesis, and it's also the hypothesis of other specialists, is what happened after Chavez's death is that it was the uncertainty generated by his sickness from 2011, uh, by, by his terminal illness, that led, even before his death, to an irreversible plunge. Why? Because in the wake of a leader's demise, the very tight margin of Maduro's victory in 2013, you know, he almost lost the presidential elections, yeah. and, and the defeat of Chavismo Maduro in the legislative elections of December 6, 2015, all these only strengthened the clans in power's willingness to cling to power at all costs, even while the mystique of the Bolivarian project was being diluted in the logic of permanent and uncontrolled improvisation and plunder. Chavez was at the same time empowering the mafia but controlling them and limiting them. Once he was not in power, there was nothing to limit the competition and, and the plunder of those mafias. You understand? So the role of Chavez was ambiguous, in the, but he was some, somehow he gave some, some equilibrium to the forces in play, and he was able to make compromises, which the new power is not able to do, but it's only a bunch of ma mafias competing between themselves and struggling only to survive through Brutal appropriation of the rents, of the oil rent, manipulation of exchange rates, and import monopolies, and th that's how they work. What do you think about the prognosis for any kind of socialist politics after Venezuela? And is the pink tide, do you think, over? Is this a moment for reflection? Or are we just going to see the left in Latin America go into a deeper and deeper ideological crisis? Um, because it seems rather confused right now yeah it is very confused it will go into a deeper ideological crisis because most of the organized left they pretend to completely defend uh, maduro's regime and, and the legacy of maduro's regime that's what they say in public when you talk in private but that's that's a double consciousness of mm. the left when you talk in private they would say yeah it's just completely fucked up those guys are a mafia but we cannot concede to imperialism I think it's a very bad strategy. I mean, some, some people really believe it, but some people are just cynical, you know, and that's a terrible thing because I remember, you know, I've lived in the, in the Eastern Bloc and uh, I'm old enough and I speak Czech and I've seen in the 80s, I knew that those regimes were crumbling from inside also for the level of cynicism and hypocrisy there was inside the same regime. So when you have people who say and tell you in private, yes, of course, Venezuela is a mess, Maduro is a gangster, but we cannot concede to imperialism, there's a real problem. It's not only a moral problem, it's a strategic problem. And the magnitude of the bad faith and cynicism and hypocrisy in the left about the Venezuelan regime makes that this ideological uh, crisis still can deepen for a few years. Uh, it's not hopeless. I mean, there are, there are social movements. It's, it's even possible that in two years, the, the military themselves kick out Bolsonaro from power. I mean, it can give new hope, maybe for the left in Brazil too. Though, there too, the PT, El Partido de los Trabajadores, the, the, the Workers' Party, has yeah. not had a, a, a real realistic attitude to the Venezuelan regime. 
that's not the same as if you speak in private. I know some people, very high people inside the Workers' Party in Brazil, they are perfectly lucid about Venezuela and they say it's a mess, it's a disaster. But there's some kind of uh, ideological inertia that say that we cannot say that in public. And if we want the other left party to support us, to support Lula, who is in jail, we cannot say anything bad about Venezuela. It seems like the anti-imperialism of a lot of people on the left has become an obstacle to thinking about socialism in a different way. It seems like it's a block. It doesn't allow for people to conceive of a socialist project that isn't just defined by its stance against the United States. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, I have a friend who recently talked to Veronica Mendoza in Peru, and uh, that's the same thing. In fact, in private, she's extremely critical of Venezuela, but I don't know if she's so critical in public, you know, I mean, but but it's a dangerous schizophrenia. It, that, that's why for me it's such a tragedy that the, the US left doesn't understand well what's going on in Venezuela. I think anti-imperialism is, is a good thing, only you must understand how, how the empire works. And they have a, a, you know, they have a vision, a caricatural vision of what, how the empire works. And for them, the, the empire in the U.S. is the, uh, just like uh, un villano de telenovela, a bad guy from a telenovela, you understand? It doesn't work like this. And you can see it just now, you know. I always said that the supposed military intervention in Venezuela was a complete bluff. And of course, it, it has been proven that it was. Um, so you must understand the real mechanisms and the fact that there's an incredible vacuum of power in, in the White House now. It seems like the anti-imperialism rhetoric is less of an analysis and more of a value that takes place of defining socialism. It's virtue signaling. Right. It's, it's not right. an analysis. And, and that's, that's a real problem. That's a real big problem. The reason, though, why the left holds on to this value of anti-imperialism is that for a very long time it has been unable to explain what are the tasks of socialism. So, for example, in our conversation about Chavez, I like that you said, well, what would a successful Bolivarian revolution look like? Maybe it would look like Norway. And I guess that raises a lot of questions, actually, because if that's the successful model, well, that's not socialism, actually. So there, there's a social democratic imagination that some of the left, like in the United States, present as, um, as part of their version of socialism. And in parts of the third world, like in Venezuela and Peru, the anti-imperialism becomes the content of, of, of socialism. In fact, this, this knee-jerk, automatic anti-imperialism fills a void, you know, but there's not a real model behind it. So you've engaged Jacobin on the Venezuelan question. I can talk with those people. I'm a bit provocative and ironical because I think there's really something they should wake up, you know. And there's called the gringo white guilt, you know, the gringo white guilt. Oh, I'm a gringo. I, I'm a member of the empire, so I cannot criticize, you know. And, um, yeah, gringo well, white guilt. guilt. You heard it here first. You know, Bolton is not interested in Venezuela. Not at all. He just make an alliance with Eliot Abraza and Marco Rubio. But it's, he's not interested in Venezuela. This thing is Iran. But I think what he's doing now is completely crazy. I don't think he will succeed because of many things, because of the opinion, because of the Congress, because of Trump himself. I mean, it's quite complicated. You, can, you, you must analyze and very finely what's going on because you cannot have knee-jerk, virtuous, anti-imperialist positions. I mean, you must be very much more specific, much more concrete. And it's terrible because what I try to speak with Venezuelans and I try to tell them, you may have your opinions. I understand that you are completely disgusted by the left because what you've the supposed left regime that you have lived in, in, in Venezuela. But don't think 
that all left-wing people are the kind of political commissar assholes they want to teach you what is really going on in Venezuela, which is the way most of the left appears to Venezuela now. And it's a tragedy. Yeah. And it doesn't really help to build a mass movement, I would imagine. Absolutely. It doesn't help. I mean, yeah. on the ground, it doesn't help the trade unionists in Venezuela. It doesn't help the indigenous people in Venezuela. Because you really need, you really need a grassroots organization. And it's not with this kind of discourse that you can help. Uh, you won't help. It's just ideological blah, blah. But you won't help real people self-organization. You, you understand what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Mark, for sitting down to talk to me about Venezuela. And we will talk to you soon. Take care. Okay, Bye. thank you very much, Pam. Ciao. Suerte. This has been a production of the Platypus Affiliated Society. Platypus is an international membership-based group that organizes reading groups, public fora, research and journalism focused on problems and tasks inherited from the old, new, and post-political left for the possibilities of emancipatory politics today. Platypus also publishes articles by thinkers and activists on the left in the monthly publication, The Platypus Review. To contact, learn more about, or get involved with Platypus, and to access the entire back catalog of The Platypus Review, please visit us online at platypus1917.org.
que se encuentran en prisión. Libertad 